Uh, But let's come to God now in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we Uh, As we come to your word, please open our hearts to receive it by faith. Uh, Please use me and my weakness to properly teach and apply this part of scripture. And as we listen to this word, may our faith in Christ be strengthened. Uh, May we see him as he is, our glorious saviour and our only hope of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come back in time with me to the moment that I first experienced that really crippling sense of guilt. Uh, I was in grade six and it was uh, the last night of our school's five-day trip to Canberra. Uh, During the last night, students were asked to perform in a talent show before other grade six classes staying in the same accommodation. Now, at this opportunity, a few boys in my class decided uh, that they wanted to sing a song written by the notorious comedian Rodney Roode. Needless to say, this uh, song wasn't entirely appropriate, and I made the foolish decision to join them. Uh, When we performed the song, the teachers uh, listening were shocked at what they heard. Most of the kids were basically confused and we got in major trouble. I have never seen, I'd never seen my teacher so enraged. She was literally screaming at us. And so that night I went back to my room and I was just crippled by guilt. I felt so guilty that I had sung such an inappropriate song, that I'd humiliated myself, my school, my teacher. What would my parents think? And on top of all of this, I was a Christian kid. What would God think? I couldn't sleep the next morning. I couldn't really eat my breakfast. And as soon as I saw my teacher arrive in the common area, I basically ran to her and begged for forgiveness. I had to have some form of relief from the guilt that I was feeling. Now, I can sort of look back now on that story and laugh a little bit. It's a bit funny. But the point remains that that guilt can cripple us. Whether you're young or old, that terrible sense that we have done something wrong and it hasn't been dealt with. Guilt has a way of taking over our minds, controlling our thoughts, making us feel like ruined people. Can't sleep, can't eat. I've felt that. I'm sure you've felt that. Well, in our passage today, we find hope for the guilty. This psalm was written by a man, King David, who was crippled by the guilt of his sin. Yet he responded in contrite repentance and faith, and as we'll see, received the cure, the forgiveness that he was longing for. So what we'll do as we come to this Psalmist, think first about David's crippling guilt. Then we'll spend the bulk of our time working through uh, the psalm, his contrite response, and then finally uh, his cure that ultimately comes through Christ and is for all of us. So first, let's think about David's crippling guilt and sin. Uh, This is one of the few psalms that actually give us the context in its heading. 
And you can see the heading at the top of the psalm in your Bibles. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, if you dig a little deeper into that incident, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll find that it actually wasn't just adultery, as bad as that was. David uses his position of power as king to compel Bathsheba, a married woman, to have sex with him. We're told that from the rooftop of his palace, David sees her, he wants her, he summons her, he has her. Now, we need to remember that basically throughout most of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel up to this point, David is basically described as Israel's Prince Charming. Brave, handsome, godly. But in this moment, Prince Charming suddenly becomes Harvey Weinstein, a rich and powerful sexual predator. See, this is the sort of thing the Me Too moment rightly rails against. But it gets worse. After David finds out Bathsheba is pregnant from uh, the incident, he tries to cover his tracks he, uh, with a series of lies and deceits, uh, deceit that eventually ends up in the murder of Bathsheba's faithful husband, Uriah. And once Uriah is out of the picture, David quickly marries Bathsheba, to avoid any suspicion, and what you basically have at the end of 2 Samuel 11 is a list that reads adultery, sexual abuse, lying, murder. But actually, at the end of all that, David still hasn't felt the guilt yet. In fact, the narrative in 2 Samuel 11 reads as though at the end of it, he thinks the whole incident, as unpleasant as it has been, is basically done with now but it's actually not been dealt with. We're told right at the end that God saw what happened, that God is angry, and in possibly the most understated sentence of the Bible, we read in 2 Samuel 11 that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So what does God do? Well, he sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin and God's anger about that sin. And it's only in that moment that David finally feels the weight of his sin, the horror of what he's done, and he's destroyed emotionally by it. And crippled by guilt, he cries out in 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. So what does David do amidst his crippling guilt? Well, this psalm, Psalm 51 tells us that David does four things right after, after having done several things wrong. His guilt actually bears good fruit of repentance. First, he goes to God. Second, he confesses his sin. Third, he prays for cleansing. And fourth, he pleads for renewal. Now, each one of those aspects of David's repentance or turning back to God is worth learning from, so that's what we'll do. But let's first look at the first part of David's contrite response. He goes to God. Now, it's worth pointing out at at the beginning of all of this that where David doesn't choose to go 
You see, David doesn't do what we might sometimes do in the face of our sin. He doesn't first go to a close friend looking for some sympathy or an understanding nod. He doesn't uh, first go to try and balance the equation, as it were. He doesn't go to the battlefield in search of some courageous act that might make up for the wrong that he's done. He doesn't go to the office and throw himself into his work as king to distract himself from his guilt. He doesn't go to any of these places because he knows that none of those things can actually deal with his guilt and sin. David goes where we all must go in the face of our guilt and sin to the merciful God. And it's actually there that David falls on his knees and prays to God, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Lord, if I have any hope, it's going to be found in you, for you are the God of amazing grace and amazing mercy. You see, David would have known the description that God gave of himself to Moses. He would have known Exodus 34, verse 6, that says this of God, the compassionate And gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, sin. Three things that basically sum David up right there. The first thing David does right here is to believe what God says about himself, that he is abundantly merciful to sinners. We sometimes sing this song at Bundy called His Mercy is More. It's a lovely song. And in the chorus it sings, Stronger than darkness, new every morn, my sins they are many, his mercy is more. Do we believe what we sing there? Uh, If you're feeling the sting of guilt tonight, do you believe that God's mercy really is more than your many sins? Now, for those of us who know Jesus, our our view of God's mercy should be huge. But I suspect that when we're in the depths of guilt, it can be tempting to buy into Satan's lie that says, my sins, they are many, God's mercy is small. But David is here reminding us to keep our view of God's mercy big, Big so that we will not fear coming to him in our guilt. David goes to God, but second, David confesses his sin. As I mentioned at the start, guilt has a way of overtaking our mind. Perhaps you've experienced that. You've been lying on your bed at night, staring at the roof, and thinking like David in verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. The sense of guilt is there when I go to bed. It's there when I wake up. It hangs over me at work. I'm in turmoil. Well, where does David go in his turmoil? What does he do? We've seen that he goes to God. Well, now we see that he owns all his sin before God. God, I don't want to hold anything back from you anymore. So I'm coming clean. And there are three aspects of David's confession that I think will help us better understand the weight of our own sin before God. And that's important because unless we understand the depths of our sin, 
we will not be able to appreciate the full glory of God's gift to us in Jesus. As Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, uh, said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Well, we get a taste of sin's bitterness, I think, as we hear David's confession in Psalm 51. He tells us of the real horror of his sin, the real verdict on his sin, and the real problem of his heart. So first, David, in his confession, tells us of the real problem of his, of the real horror of his sin. Uh, the horror of David's sin uh, wasn't just that he had dreadfully wronged Bathsheba, Uriah, and many others, but that he had ultimately wronged God. See, look at verse 4, what he says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God tells us to love him and love our neighbor. When we fail to love others who have been made in God's image and disobey God's word, it's an attack on God himself. David had ignored and belittled God in his actions. That is the true horror of sin, big or small, as we see it. See, it's never just between uh, me and this other person that I sin against. It's actually me sinning against the holy God. But second, David confesses the true verdict on his sin. Now, have you ever looked at sin in your life and had that, yeah, but moment that kind of seeks to minimize your sin. Yeah, I know I yelled at my housemate the other day, but she just wasn't listening, and what else was I supposed to do? Yeah, I know I lied on my tax return, but I pay my fair share of tax. There is no yeah but moment in genuine confession. As David shows us uh, in this Psalm, at no stage here does he try to minimize or justify his sin. He doesn't say, yeah, Lord, I know what I did was wrong, but if a royal scandal became public, well, it would unsettle the nation. Your people would be unsettled. No, David completely accepts God's verdict on his sin. You see that at the end of verse 4. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David confesses the real verdict on his sin, God's verdict, not his own. And third, David confesses the real problem of his heart. Uh, sometimes we like to think that our sinful actions are kind of freak accidents. That wasn't me doing that. I don't know where that came from. David confesses the fact that it actually was him doing those acts. He's thinking, I'm not just someone who did a sinful act, but someone who was a sinful person in my heart. Sinful from day one, in fact. Look at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David confesses that uncomfortable truth that he is. We are born with an inherent and sinful heart desire to live life on our terms, 
not God's terms. So you ask any parent, and they'll tell you that you never have to train your child to disobey. They kind of know how to do that already. You have to train them how to obey. We are born with a heart desire that wants to live for ourselves. Uh, Another way to think about the problem of the heart is a little bit like chickenpox. Uh, We see these sort of ugly spots appear on our body when we've got the chickenpox, but you see, the spots aren't the real problem, are they? They're just a symptom. The real problem is the virus running through our body, and that's kind of what David's saying about sin here. David is tapping into the real problem, the heart problem of sin. His actions were horrible, but they were a symptom of an underlying heart problem. Uh, Jesus tells us the same thing in Mark chapter 7. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside a person, and actually that's what defiles a person. If we're going to be truly saved from our sin and guilt, the underlying heart problem needs to be dealt with. You see, this is a confession which truly owns the bitterness of sin. David rightly confesses the true horror of sin, the true verdict, and the true problem of his heart. And so David goes to God. There he confesses to God. And now third, he prays for cleansing. Lord, I feel completely stained by my sin. I feel overwhelmed by the guilt of it. Wash me clean. And you see that coming out at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I don't want just partial cleansing. I want total cleansing, verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Uh, In the Old Testament law, the hyssop branch was used by the priest to declare someone who had been spiritually unclean, now spiritually clean. And so it's like David is, is saying to God, please, Lord, I know I'm spiritually unfit, but do what it takes to change that. Get out the hyssop. I'm desperate for your cleansing. I know I'm not fit for your presence, but I want to be. I want to be rid of my sin and guilt. But notice that David doesn't want to get rid of his sin and guilt just so that he'll feel better. He wants God to take away his guilt so that he can once and again enjoy relationship with his God. He's not just trying to get rid of something, he's trying to gain something. He wants that joy back. That's why he says in verse 8 and 9, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Lord, make me clean. Forgive my sin. So David goes to God, confesses sin, prays for cleansing, 
and finally pleads for renewal. David's basically saying here, I don't just want your forgiveness, I want your transformation. I know what my sinful heart is capable of, and I don't want to go there again. I mean, I think we've all felt like that. Horrified that we could be so easily angered or so easily tempted, and now we are just desperate for God to change us. And so David cries out in verse 10, and maybe you know this cry, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, David had seen what had happened to King Saul when Saul had sinned against God. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and Saul spiraled further and further into sin and depravity. David prays that he wouldn't become that, that God would be merciful to him. He wants lasting heart change. A Thomas Chalmers, a famous Scottish preacher, once said that the only way to dispossess uh, the heart, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. See, our hearts are never neutral. They are always running to something to try and find satisfaction or joy. And sometimes we'll run to stuff like sexual pleasure for that or money or esteem by others. And David, I think, gets this. See, notice that he's not asking God in verse 12 to restore to him more self-control sexually. He's not asking God to restore to him a good accountability group, as good as both of those things are. No, it's verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David wants his old lusts booted out from his life by a new and better joy of knowing God's salvation. And that's a good reminder to us that if we want lasting heart change, particularly in the face of sexual sin, then it starts by falling in love with Jesus again. We have to give our heart something better to cling to, to run to. And when heart change comes, David says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I want you to to save and change me so that others might look at your work in my life and say, I want what he's got. David wants God's change in his life to produce evangelism to bring others to know God. And I'm willing to bet there are some of you listening who first actually became interested in Jesus because of the infectious joy and hope of a saved and changed Christian that you knew. David is saying, I want renewal. Lord, deliver me from this guilt so that I can sing of your righteousness and declare your praises, verse 15. Uh, One thing is clear from this psalm, 
David has been broken by his sin. And this is a good thing. He knows there is uh, nothing that he can offer uh, to God that will make up for what he has done, but he clings to what he knows of God, that God will not turn away anyone who comes to him broken and on their knees in humble repentance, crying out for mercy. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Someone asked me in our Christianity Explored group the other night uh, whether everyone is worthy of God's forgiveness or is it just that some people are? Well, the answer is no one's worthy of God's forgiveness. But God is merciful to undeserving sinners who, like David, turn to him in repentance and faith. See, David responds to his sin and guilt rightly. He goes to God, he confesses his sin, he prays for forgiveness, he pleads for renewal. This is the contrite response that God does not despise. Well, finally, the cure of Christ. Uh, We've thought tonight about David's crippling guilt. We've considered his, his contrite response and repentance in this psalm. Well, the question we've got to ask after all of this is, does this adulterer, this murderer, get the cure he's looking for? Does God forgive David? Well, we're told the answer to that question back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. The answer is yes. Then David said to Nathan after he had been rebuked, I have sinned against the Lord. But notice Nathan's reply, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. You see, the law demanded actually death for David's sins. He had committed adultery, deserving death. He basically committed murder, deserving death. But God forgives him. He takes away his guilt and sin. Now, at one level, that should actually shock us. God just takes it away. I mean, this guy had sexually abused a married woman, He had lied about it. He had then murdered her husband. How can God just take away his sin? How is this just? And this week we've been reminded how much we all long for justice. America has been in uproar for the past week over the death of George George Floyd following a police officer using excessive force, knee on the neck. You know, people rightly want to see justice delivered for that crime. And of course they do. All of us want to know that justice will come in the face of crime. It's terrible to think that a a judge will just sweep someone's sin under the rug and let the person off. Is that what God is doing here with David? Where's the justice 
Where's the justice for Bathsheba or for Uriah, for the baby that subsequently died? The New Testament shows us the answer, that God's justice for his sin is found in Christ. In Christ, God is able to be both merciful to David and just towards his sin in the sacrificial and substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, is explaining this, I think, uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. Uh, There Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It was through the shed blood of Christ that David's sin could actually be blotted out mercy given, and justice upheld at the cross. I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, God sees uh, from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. Well, like David, Christ is our cure for sin and guilt. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, our sin and our guilt is blotted out and we are washed clean. Uh, The Bible talks about the wages of sin being death, that heart condition that is in rebellion to God, deserves death. But Jesus isn't just dealing with the symptoms, he gets to the disease of the rebellious heart. That's what we are forgiven of. He forgives us of all our sin at the cross. And if you haven't yet found that cure, I'd encourage you to be like David and fall on your knees before God in prayer, confessing your sin, asking for forgiveness, and praying for God's renewal to live as a follower of Jesus, trusting him. David shows us that God's mercy is big enough to include adulterers, liars, murderers who would turn to him in repentance and faith. There is no level of sin and guilt that Christ can't cure. We've heard what David said at the end there, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. But what of those who are followers of Jesus? Well, sin and subsequent feelings of guilt will be something that we continue to experience this side of heaven. Although God has redeemed us, we will continue to fall into sin and feel the guilt that follows that often. We will feel guilty after we lash out at someone unjustly. Uh, We will probably feel guilty after we distort the truth to make ourselves look better. We'll often feel guilty after we've gossiped about someone. When we feel guilty because of sin, 
we need to remember that we have a merciful saviour like David. His name is Jesus, and as we confess our sins to him, he will be gracious to forgive us. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Christ's death on the cross doesn't replace our confession. It's the basis of our confession when we sin. Because Jesus' shed blood makes us clean, we know in those dark moments of guilt and shame that we can come to Jesus with humble hearts, confident that he will forgive us and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Well, I just want to finish briefly by speaking to those of you who may well be experiencing the guilt of sexual sin tonight. You see, the context of this psalm is that of sexual sin and the guilt that flowed from that. Uh, For many Christians, sexual sin, particularly pornography, just crushes people. It casts a depressing shadow of guilt over people's lives. And and I could be wrong, but I suspect that in a time of isolation... Uh, It's just made things harder to avoid the temptation of sexual sin. Stuck at home, often late nights, lots of screen time. We all need to know the hope that this psalm speaks of in the face of sexual sin and the guilt that flows from it. You see, David was someone who understood the guilt of sexual sin in a major way. But he is also someone who offers a way forward that is based on God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's power to change. So if you're struggling tonight, if you feel the guilt of sexual sin, I would encourage you to walk the path of repentance and faith that David does. And we do this with all our sin. Go to God. Fall on your knees in prayer and keep a big view of his mercy. You might want to pray with others who are struggling or you might want to just pray on your own. But think if David could approach God with confidence, I can, so I will. Second, confess your sin and like David, be honest about the true horror of your sin so that you learn to hate it. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And pray for forgiveness, knowing that it will be given to you through faith in Jesus. Like David, you can cry, cleanse me from my sin, and know that God will do just that. And plead for renewal. Like David, plead for the change in your heart that only God can bring about. Ask that the joy of your salvation in Jesus, the eternal life that you have in him, would trump, would expel any other fleeting joy that you want to find in other sin, in sexual sin. We need that expulsive power of a new affection in the gospel. That's the secret weapon that David was praying for. And don't get discouraged when you fail to see change. Just give thanks where you do see change and keep praying. The way of repentance and faith is the way of all Christians 
at all times. We actually never move beyond this. And as we'll see in the Lord's Supper shortly, we are needy sinners who constantly depend on God's mercy in Christ. Well, Psalm 51 teaches us that the answer to crippling guilt is a contrite and broken spirit that puts our faith in the cure of Christ. It is Christ who forgives. It is Christ who renews. So let's pray to him now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that in Jesus we have the hope, we have hope in the face of guilt. I thank you that through faith in our crucified and our risen Lord, we can always be confident that as we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We owe everything to you, Jesus. Praise be to your name. Amen.